You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Okay, so our reading uh, tonight is from Matthew 22. I'm reading from verse 15 to uh, 46. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one was married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his, this teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with these, this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Oh, well, let's pray as we come to God's word. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would be with us uh, this afternoon as we look at your word. Uh, as the psalmist says, your word is more precious than gold, than much pure gold, uh, sweeter than the honey from the comb. Our Father, please uh, make your word by the power of your spirit precious to us, sweet to us this afternoon. Uh, in particular, uh, please show us uh, that Jesus, your son, has the exact authority that we would expect of your king, uh, so that therefore we should surrender our lives to him. 
Uh, some of you are probably familiar with the ABC TV show called Q&A. Uh, I must admit I don't watch it as much as I used to. Frankly, uh, it, it annoys me a little bit. Uh, but the idea of the show uh, is to get together some of Australia's leading thinkers and politicians, even some people from around the world, uh, so that they can answer the tough questions of the studio audience, whether the Australian public. Uh, of course, by the end of the episode, uh, you're always starting to get a sense of which panellists really know their stuff, and which panellists, frankly, are just out of their depth. By which panellists can answer the questions with real authority, with knowledge, with wisdom, with insight, and which panellists are just getting themselves tied up in knots. Well, I mentioned that show called Q&A, but because today's passage is a bit like a Q&A episode with Jesus, as the Jewish leaders in the temple continually bring their questions to Jesus, to try and test Jesus, to trap Jesus. But what we see in this passage is that Jesus is never intimidated by their questions. He's never out of his depth. In fact, by the end of the episode, this passage, it's obvious that Jesus has come out on top, that the most authoritative religious leaders in the land have challenged him with a series of tough questions, and he's answered them, uh, all of them, with great authority. It's clear that Jesus has the authority that you would expect of God's king. So you should surrender your life to him. That's my big idea for today's passage. Jesus has the authority that you would expect of God's king. So you should surrender your life to him. So let's have a look at how these religious leaders put Jesus on trial in this passage. This passage that's set against the backdrop of the ongoing conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders based in the temple. And now it might be helpful to know that within those leaders based in the temple, uh, there are essentially three main groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers or experts in the law. Uh, so in today's passage, each of those groups puts Jesus to the test with a question. Uh, the Pharisees test Jesus on taxation. The Sadducees test Jesus on the resurrection. Uh, and an expert in the law tests Jesus on interpretation of God's law. So first, let's look at verses 15 to 22, where the Pharisees test Jesus on taxation. In verse 15, Matthew points out that after the parables that Jesus has just told, right, that the parables in which Jesus uh, it was really expressing his judgment upon these Jewish leaders, uh, these leaders immediately uh, send some of the Pharisees to try and trap Jesus in his words. Uh, that word trap uh, has the sense of setting a snare to catch an animal. Right, so, so previously, that there's certainly been plenty of tension between Jesus and these leaders. Uh, but now they're aggressively pursuing Jesus. Right, that they're uh, hunting Jesus like an animal. And, and it's worth noting that the alliance in verse 15 between the Pharisees and the Herodians is very unlikely. Right, because theologically and politically, the Pharisees were the conservatives of their day and the Herodians were the progressives of their day. Right, these two groups had really had almost nothing in common except for the fact that they wanted to get rid of Jesus. So look in verse 16. The leaders say to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Here a group of leaders comes to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, we know that you're not someone who's swayed by flattery, so let us try to sway you by flattery. It's kind of a little bit, a little bit of irony there. Maybe they, they're not quite. Uh, but anyway, they, they give it their best crack. Uh, their best crack. Uh, but Jesus, of course, sees right through their evil intent. I look here in verse 17. Um, uh, sorry, they ask Jesus this question. They're having a crack. Uh, they ask him, uh, tell us, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax or not? Now, of course, the tax they're talking about is what was known as the imperial poll tax. I'm sure you're very familiar with the history of Roman taxation, right? Uh, perhaps not, nor was I before studying this passage. Uh, but the, the, this was a tax that basically every Jewish person resented uh, because the amount that each Jew had to pay was a denarius, uh, a particular Roman coin that they paid. And on one side of the denarius, uh, it had the head of Tiberius Caesar, And the inscription around the edge of the coin uh, said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side of the coin, uh, it typically had the head of Tiberius's mother on it. And the inscription read, High Priest of the Gods. So you imagine a Jewish person who believed that there was one true God. Uh, For them, they considered these coins to almost be like mini idols in circulation. With their portrayal of Caesar as being semi-divine, as being almost godlike. Sorry to whose notes they were. So the question of these leaders, if you actually think about it, the question of these leaders is actually really clever. If Jesus shows support to this idea of taxation, then he loses credit in the eyes of the Jews. But if he rejects this taxation, the Romans will arrest him and charge him. It's a very clever question. Uh, But this is where Jesus sees right through them, isn't it? He sees right through them in verse 18. He says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? And then Jesus asks someone to bring him a denarius. And what does Jesus say? He says, whose image is on this coin? Whose inscription? And when the reply is that it's Caesar's image, Jesus says, well, there you go. If the image on the coin is Caesar's, then the coin belongs to Caesar, Jesus says. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes, Jesus says. So the reality is that the precious metals that that were used to make each and every one of these coins, those metals belong to Caesar. They were mined from his territory. It was through Caesar's wealth that roads and education and, and military protection were offered to the Jewish people. They enjoyed it. So Jesus is saying, if you guys want to enjoy all those blessings of Caesar's wealth, then you've got to give Caesar his due. You must pay your taxes. Right? Jesus is acknowledging that even a, a corrupt and evil ruler like Caesar has been appointed by God and is therefore worthy of respect and submission. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't only say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He also says, give to God what is God's. It's an incredibly radical statement from Jesus. I mentioned just before how Caesar was portrayed as semi-divine, as almost godlike. So most people thought that since Caesar had this kind of semi-godlike identity, that he also possessed a semi-godlike authority. 
As Caesar, as it were, spoke on behalf of the gods. But Jesus says no. But he rejects that idea. Jesus says, excuse me, uh, Jesus says, yes, Caesar has, excuse me, uh, yes, you should pay your taxes to Caesar, but no, you shouldn't worship Caesar. Yes, Caesar has real authority, but no, Caesar does not have ultimate authority. And now, of course, there are implications for Jesus' teaching in these verses for how we, as Christians, if you're a Christian, uh, for how we should relate to governing authorities. On the one hand, Jesus' words here uh, tell us that we should respect governing authorities that God has put in place. But in general, Christians shouldn't be, we shouldn't be anarchists, we, we shouldn't be zealots who are trying to overthrow the government. We recognize that all governing authorities have been put in place by God and we're called to respect them and submit to them. That's what we are called to respect the governing authorities, but equally, Jesus' words here tell us that it's perfectly valid to critique governing authorities. Right? Human authorities should be in submission to God's authority. Right? God's authority, human authorities, should be in submission to God's authority. So if a human authority uses their power to act against God's word or to coerce its citizens to act against God's word, then we as Christians should feel empowered to say something about that. Wisely, graciously, truthfully, critiquing it, speaking out against it. Of course, recently, this is something that the elders of our church encourage you to do in relation to the Victorian government's uh, a change in suppression bill, which is going to be voted on in the upper house this week. It's a bill, it seems to me, that is clearly designed not just to eliminate abusive practices, but to eliminate mainstream Christian teaching when it comes to sex and gender. To criminalise that sort of thing. That's something that we should critique. We should speak out against that. Not in a disrespectful way. We've got to maintain this posture of respectful critique towards our governing authorities. Just like Jesus said, pay your taxes, but don't worship Caesar. You know, give Caesar what he deserves. And now, of course, Jesus uh, drives home this idea that ultimate authority resides with God, not Caesar, uh, by using that word image in verse 20. Maybe you remember that idea, image, from elsewhere in the Bible. It's the same word that God uses in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, uh, where it said, let us make mankind in our image. So think through the, the implications of this. Jesus has just said that if a coin bears Caesar's image, that coin belongs to God. Right, but now he's saying that if every human being bears God's image, then every human being also belongs to God. Right, so if, um, if the people of Judea had to give to Caesar what belonged to Caesar, then uh, all of humanity has to give to God what belongs to God. The people of Judea, Judea had to pay their taxes to Caesar. Uh, what does all of humanity owe to God? Well, Jesus says later in the chapter, Jesus says we owe God our entire life. Right, that's a big call. But, but take a look down. We'll talk about it more later on. But look down in verse 36. And when the expert in the law comes uh, to Jesus, says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Or, or kind of essentially, Jesus, what is it that humanity owes God? Most centrally, what is it that God requires of us? And Jesus says, 
uh, or to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So having created you in his image, what is it that God requires of you? It's that you love him with everything you have, with your heart and soul and mind. That's what it means to give to God what belongs to God. Not to attend church every now and then, not to offer him a few religious deeds or uh, a few good deeds, but to offer him your entire life, Jesus is saying. Well, in verse 22, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians are amazed at Jesus' answer. He'd answered them with such great authority, so they leave him. They go back to the temple, you can imagine, and they talk amongst the other Jewish leaders there. In verses 23 to 33, another delegation is sent out, this time the Sadducees, to ask Jesus a question about the resurrection. Of the Sadducees, they were probably the most highly educated. They would have considered themselves to be quite sophisticated uh, in their day. Uh, they accepted the moral teachings of the Old Testament, but they didn't want a bar of the idea of miracles. Right? They, they rejected any idea of the miraculous. In, in fact, when I say they accepted the moral teachings of the Old Testament, they only really accepted the first five books of the Bible as God's word. And that's why they didn't believe in the resurrection, as Matthew tells us here. Unlike the Pharisees, uh, who believed that passages like Isaiah 26 verse 19, for example, were God's word. This is Isaiah 26 verse 19. Uh, It says, But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. Uh, You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. So the the Pharisees believed that passage was God's word, uh, so they believed in the resurrection. Likewise, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which says, Multitudes who uh, sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. So you see the the difference here. The Pharisees believed that all of the Old Testament was God's word, so they believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees believed that only the first five books of the Bible were God's word, uh, and so they didn't believe in the resurrection. So in verses 24 to 28, take a look there. I'm not going to kind of go through that question, but they basically asked Jesus a question that is designed to make any idea of the afterlife, the resurrection, seem ridiculous. So to understand their question, you've got to understand a little bit of cultural background of what the Jewish people called Leverite marriage. The idea of Leverite marriage was if, let's say, I have a brother uh, who's married uh, and uh, my brother dies, then I'm obligated to marry his widow and to do my best to, to have children with her so that my brother's family line can continue. So you see that the question of the Sadducees is, uh, if a woman is married to seven different brothers throughout her life, that's a lot of bad luck with marrying brothers, isn't it? But if if she's married to seven different brothers throughout her life, uh, whose wife will she be in the afterlife, in the resurrection? So how does Jesus respond to this question? Well, first, he rebukes them for their dodgy view of the Bible, their dodgy view of Scriptures. Look in verse 29. Uh, He says, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures. You say, well, which Scriptures don't they know? Well, at least Jesus quotes one example in verse 32. He quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. You see it there? This is, notice that Jesus kind of starts on their terms. He quotes a verse from the part of the Bible that they actually accept as God's Word, from the first five books of the Bible. And in that verse, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Anyway, think about that. When God says that to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for centuries. So so God is saying in verse 32, Jesus is pointing out that if God can say that he is their God, not that he was their God, then Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob must be alive with God. Why? Because God is the God of the living, not the dead. You see Jesus' point, he's saying, you guys only accept five books of the Bible as God's word, and you don't even understand that. You don't even know this small part of the Bible that you accept. Can't see how it points us towards the resurrection. So Jesus rebukes them for their dodgy view of Scripture, and then he rebukes them for their denial of God's power. Verse 29, you are in error because you do not know the power of God. Then in verse 30, how is it they don't know the power of God? Well, Jesus says, at the resurrection, uh, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Jesus' kind of answer here uh, really reveals a a hidden assumption in the Sadducees' question. They assume that if the afterlife did exist, it will essentially be a continuation of this life. Exactly the same. But Jesus says, no, 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 you're wrong. You don't understand just how powerful the resurrection of all things is going to be. When God's resurrection power comes in all its fullness, life as we know it will be completely transformed. All of creation will be transformed and marriage as we know it will cease to exist. That's Jesus' point. You're underestimating the power, the transformative power of God in the resurrection. Now, some of you are here, if you're married, or maybe you're looking forward to getting married soon, you think that's not such good news. You know, I love my husband or wife. I want to be married to them forever. Maybe you feel like that means you're going to miss out in heaven. There's going to be some sort of love deficit in heaven. Now, some people think that when Jesus says we're going to be like angels in heaven, he's actually saying, look, we're going to, it's like sex or gender is going to be removed. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. But he is saying that uh, when, God's, when the resurrection power comes, the nature of our relationships are going to be radically transformed. But, but that doesn't mean that the love we're going to experience in heaven is going to be any less deep or intimate or, or real. Well, what's marriage? Marriage gives some people in this life a taste of a relationship uh, that is incredibly deep and intimate and loving. But in heaven, what's going to happen uh, is that that love is going to be universalized to everyone. As everyone experiences the deep love and intimacy of being uh, united with God and his people. You won't need marriage in heaven. You won't miss it because you'll know the intimate love of God. It's a love that's infinitely better than any love you've experienced in this life because it won't be tainted by sin. It won't be tainted by selfishness or suffering in any way. This is Jesus' answer. The Sadducees have massively underestimated the power of God to transform all things. Well, we don't know exactly what the Sadducees thought of Jesus' answer, but he must have at least given them something to think about. Because look in verse 33. We're told that the whole crowd was astonished at Jesus' teaching. You you can always see their, their kind of jaws dropping. So in verses 34 to 40, we get our last testing question. 
the expert in the law, testing Jesus about interpreting God's law. I take a look in verse 34, that the Pharisees have got wind about how Jesus dealt with the Sadducees. He silenced the Sadducees on the resurrection, so they've devised a new plan. They've sent, verse 35, one of their number, an expert in the law, uh, to test Jesus with another question. And we touched on this before. This, This expert in the law, by the way, probably some sort of professional scribe or scholar in the Old Testament law, someone who really dedicated their whole life to studying it and classifying God's law, working out how all the different parts of the Old Testament law related to one another. So he probably has a genuine interest in which law is the most important. Verse 36, he says to Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answers by quoting two commandments from the Old Testament. In verses 37 and 38, he quotes Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said. These uh, were from what the Jewish people called the Shema. Actually, two commands, or two statements of faith really went together. One about who God was, the one true God, and another about what God requires of them. To love him with their heart and soul and mind. A devout Jew would recite these verses every morning and night to remind them of who God is and what he requires of them. So that's kind of what's most important on the, on the vertical level. It's to love God. And what's most important on the horizontal level, Jesus says, Leviticus 19 verse 18, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Right? Jesus sums up the whole Old Testament law, love God and love others. All the law and the prophets, Jesus says, verse 40, hang on these two commandments. This is helpful. I think it's true that lots of laws in the Old Testament are cast in a negative way, in the sense of the the thou shalt nots of the Ten Commandments, for example. But here Jesus is saying that you haven't really fulfilled those commandments, you haven't fulfilled God's law, if you've simply avoided what it forbids. So you haven't really fulfilled the command to not commit adultery, for example, if you've avoided having an affair. Or you fulfill that command by faithfully loving your husband or wife. You haven't fulfilled the command, uh, thou shalt not steal, simply by not being found guilty of theft. Or you fulfill that command by being generous with what you have for the sake of others, by loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus has an incredibly kind of positive and loving way of speaking about the fulfillment of God's law. And that's important because if you only see fulfilling God's law as a kind of avoiding certain behaviors, then after a while you might actually start to think you're doing pretty well. You're feeling quite good about yourself because by and large you're doing a good job of not murdering anyone. I suspect most of us here, I'm not saying, I don't know the details of everyone's life, but most of us are probably doing okay with not murdering anyone. Uh, you know, maybe you haven't stolen anything. You know, you can start to build up a picture of yourself. Oh, I'm actually a pretty good person. Uh, but once you, when you realize that what God requires of you is to positively love him and love others, then you realize just how far short of God's standards you fall. You are indeed a sinner. You say, Aaron, that's just a big downer. I came to church for a pick-me-up today. I say, but it's actually a wonderful thing to realize that. Because once you realize how far short you fall, you can confess your sin to God and you can receive his grace and mercy to you in Christ. It's a wonderful thing. 
Excuse me. Well, Jesus has answered all their questions. And at the end of the passage, he asks a question of his own, a question that uh, is really designed to demonstrate where his authority comes from, the source of his authority. Take a look in verse 42. Jesus says, uh, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? If you've read the last couple of chapters of Matthew, it's no surprise when the Pharisees say, Well, he's the son of David. Repeatedly, Jesus has been called the son of David. So in verse 43, Jesus doesn't actually say that they're right, but he implicitly agrees with them. Uh, the, the Messiah is the promised son of David. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, for example. You might want to read that later on. Uh, but, in ver- uh, but then Jesus asks the key question. He says, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? What do you mean, Jesus? Where does David call him Lord? Well, Jesus gives some evidence. Verse 44, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, uh, where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You've got to kind of follow Jesus' logic here. So in Psalm 110, David is the king of Israel, and yet he refers to someone else, he speaks to someone else as his Lord. Now, if you accept that who David's speaking to here is the Messiah, the promised son of David, which uh, was commonly accepted, uh, then it's a bit confusing, isn't it? Why would David speak to one of his own descendants and refer to him as Lord? You see, Jesus' point here, he's saying that the David's language in Psalm 110 really doesn't make that much sense if David's just speaking to another human being, if he's just speaking to another human king. The promised son of David must be someone far greater than David. Something far more than just another human king in the line of Israel's kings. He must be the Lord. Remember, Jesus in Matthew's Gospel has regularly referred to himself as the Son of Man. 2 Samuel chapter 7, remember Daniel chapter 7 as well. The Son of Man who has been given all authority by God to establish and rule over his kingdom, authority over everyone, authority including over David. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is challenging these leaders' assumptions about who the Messiah is. In fact, he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the promised son of David, the one who's come to establish and rule over God's kingdom. Jesus is far greater as the Messiah than these leaders would have ever expected. For example... These leaders expected the Messiah to overthrow the enemies of the Jewish people, the Romans who were oppressing them. Jesus has a much bigger mission than that. Jesus came to, to have a triumph not just over the Romans, but over the ultimate enemies of humanity, over sin, over the devil, over death, to overthrow those enemies that are oppressing not just the Jews, but all humanity. Jesus is a much greater Messiah than these Jews ever expected much, much greater than David. This is the source of Jesus' authority. He is the Messiah, God's promised king, the one who's been given authority over everyone. Notice the links. Authority over Caesar. He can tell what's what with Caesar's taxes. Authority over these leaders. Authority over King David. Authority over everyone. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus has the authority that you would expect of God's king, so you should surrender your life to him. Verse 46, the Jewish leaders 
realize that they're no match for Jesus. Kind of knockout punch from Jesus in these verses. They don't dare ask him any more questions. And so the question for us is, how should we respond to Jesus' authority? And there's really three broad responses. You could respond a little bit like an irreligious person. An irreligious person might be someone who says, I don't need Jesus to save me. Sure, my life isn't perfect. I've got some room for improvement. Uh, but in the end, I'm going to sort it out myself by following my dreams, by following my heart, by doing what I think is right, being true to myself. Don't need Jesus. The religious person, on the other hand, says, uh, Sure, my life might not be perfect. Uh, They might even understand themselves to be a sinner, but they don't need Jesus to save them because they're going to save themselves by following some rules and some rituals and uh, observing some traditions. The the irreligious and the religious person have in common the fact that they desperately want to keep control of their life, uh, as if their life belongs to them, as if their life is their own, to do with it what they will. But haven't we seen in this passage that that's not true? But I understand this. By God's grace in becoming a Christian, I understand that I have been made in the image of God. So by virtue of being created in his image, my life is not my own. My life belongs to God, to the God who made me. And more than that, I understand that the Christ, the one who had all authority, ultimately used his authority to lay down his life for me on the cross. For all my sins, all my failures to love God and others, he laid down his life for me, redeeming me from from my sins. So what does that mean? It means I belong to God twice. If it wasn't enough for me to belong to him by virtue of creation, now I belong to him because I've been bought by him through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. I belong to him by creation and redemption. My life is not my own. My life belongs to God. So let me encourage you this afternoon to give to God what belongs to Him. You can do that by surrendering your life to Jesus. Jesus has the authority that you would expect of God's King, so you should surrender your life to Him. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank You for this, Your Word. Uh, We pray that by the power of Your Spirit, uh, You would open our eyes to see who Jesus is, uh, that He does indeed have the authority that You would expect of Your King. And that therefore, we should surrender our lives to him. We pray in his name. Amen.